starting next week, we're really going to get into some other details concerning this. But this is really understanding covenant and the basis of how it operates and an understanding that takes us in a different path than the normal religious look at things that puts us at peace. It assures us of our relationship with him. <coughs> Excuse me, and I'm going to share with us with you tonight. But let's go ahead and take a look at our opening text that we've been using as a foundation. It's found in the Last Supper with Christ. It simply says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so what's so neat about this, too, is you be, when you begin to understand new covenant, and we've talked about mediator, we've talked about Christ being that mediator, retaining the, the, the marks in his body when he was raised from the dead as one who bears the mark, the, the, the covenant mediator for all of those who are in him in that, and how that works as it says in the new covenant, and he says, in my blood, because blood must be shed, there is that, that sacrifice between people, you know, you, they, they'd split a, a, an animal, usually a, a cow or a bull, in that sense, and from front to back, and they lay it open, and they will circle in that as they share their, um, uh, their terms. This, this, this group over here, represented by this mediator, brings their terms, what, what they're bringing into the covenant, they bring their terms over here, and they make a circle eight, which is simply an infinity aspect, and then they'll meet in the middle of that, and they'll be joined together in the scars that have been, or not the scars, but the wounds that have been made to join their blood together to become the blood brothers that they become. There's a lot to it, but we'll, we'll share on that as we get into other things, and, and again, more meaning and the understanding behind these things. It's really key to understand covenant. Not, not you know, I've done studies here, many of you are aware or have the, the, the booklet on covenant. And that's, that's, that was a huge undertaking in and of itself. But let's remind ourselves from last week the definition, the definition of covenant that simply says the meaning of our existence, to live by the life of God, enjoying the privilege of being his friend. That's what stands behind understanding a good definition from which we'll walk through this journey together. Now, to understand a covenant is made in order to bring about a state of living in loving kindness. Say that word with me, loving kindness. There's no course we had, thy loving kindness. Remember that one? Is better than life. And nobody really ever understood what that meant, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about that tonight. But the, the, the oath that, you know, accompanied with blood shedding is in order to give strength to this idea, to this understanding. God makes covenant not to make loving kindness, but to reveal that he is all that loving kindness means. Behind the covenant that he makes is the core of his heart, which is infinite love. And it's best understood among men as this word, hasid. We've talked about the word hasid, as we would not, you know, literally have the rays that we have from the sun. If there was no sun, there would be no covenant 
if God wasn't the molten core of infinite and unconditional love. This, again, it's, it's the heart of the revelation of God that comes to us in Christ and through these Gospels. So without this revelation of who he is, the thought of God for a lot of people brings about a lot of anxiety. And I mean, no wonder, really. Can you imagine life with a God who doesn't love us? Think about it. I mean, what if God who is almighty power and, and who knows every thought and motive of our hearts, who is always present with us, who, who is, is in, a, in sovereignty that rules our world and, 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 and did not like us and, you know, planned our destruction. <laughs> Such a God could only be conceived as terrified, directing, you know, his wrath toward us, condemning us and damning us for our many sins. You know, my picture of God as a kid was always this big eyeball in the sky that was watching my every move so that if I did something wrong, these incredible lightning bolts would come out and get you. So, I mean, that's a lot to go through thinking of God in those terms. I mean, but in honesty, evaluation for a lot of believers, that's the picture that they have of him. And what you got is, is I, I call, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's called pagan anxiety at the thought of God. It's a pagan anxiety. They're worried they're not going to please him. They're worried to think they're doing the wrong thing. They're worried, you know, and, and they have this uneasy fear of, of him. I mean, and, and it's like they're, they're just continually, you know what it's like to look over your shoulder to see if somebody's coming that's going to hurt you and make havoc of your life in that way. You know, early in my ministry, because that's the way things were, uh, 70, 93 years ago or something, I don't know. But you know, early in my ministry, you know, it was when, when I preached, it was about damning people, right? So that they would come out of their pews and rededicate their rededicated, dedicated dedications. You know, get them up here. Oh, God, I'm sorry that I did this. And, 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 and as a result of that, you know, and it was amazing, you know, that, that bondage that we were all about. You had to come to church wearing a construction helmet so that as, you know, the preacher beat you over the head with it, you wouldn't get too hurt. And then I've shared with you many times over, there came that point in my life where, you know what, this wasn't working. I was as dead as a doornail. I was, I was just dead as, I mean, there was no spirit to what we were doing. It was dry, it was hard, it was futile, it wasn't doable, and the greatest day came in my life when I quit living for God. I just stopped. I said, I can't do it. And God said, good. And maybe I can do something. And I learned that instead of living for God, now I began to live from him instead. And that was huge. I remember going into the hospital one time to visit, visit a man that hadn't been into the church for probably 35, almost 40 years. And he was dying of cancer. He'd been a smoker all of his life. 
And I'll never forget walking into his room and saying, hey, Joe, that was his name. I knew him because of family members that were in our church. I said, hey, Joe, and he said, Pastor. And he just, you know, his head sunk. And I, I just began to share and talk with him. And he looked at me and said, Pastor, you know why I won't come to church. And he, he able to share with me, he said, I tried. I, I came to the altar. I, I bowed my head, and I, I gave my life to Christ. But I couldn't give up those cigarettes. They, they just they, they had a hold of me in that way, and 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 the people told me that if I I don't stop smoking, I'll go to hell. I I just I, I can't be saved and smoke at the same time. And my heart broke. My, you know what I mean? It's it's like. It's not about you doing these things for God to accept you. It's about to love you. And I, I shared with him at that point in time, you know, <laughs> I, just, I just began to tell him of the grace of God. I began to share with him, it's not about what you do, it's about what he's done. It's not, not about, you know, your struggles or you're trying to do something for him. He's already done it for you. And as I shared with him, I led him to Christ in a way that gave him peace and assurance. And two days later, he went home to be with the Lord. No two ways. His countenance on his face, I never forget the change that came over him. You know, when his spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his children, changes everything. Pastor, you mean you can smoke and go to heaven? I would suggest you not be the judge and leave it up to the one who is. I've learned that we give people Jesus and not judgment. He loves us. And the love of God needs to be shouted to a world of lost and hopeless people. And that is the greatest news that we can and has ever been announced. Take a look at these verses of Scripture. Beloved, let us love one another. For the love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love God does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the prohibition for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so also ought, so, I'm sorry, we also ought to love one another. Turn to your neighbor. Tell him, I love you. I love you. I like those dogs on America's Funniest Videos. Whoa, 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 you know, right? But God is love. The Father, in his infinite and unconditional love for us, sent his Son, the Lord Jesus, and to announce to us who he is and to make the new covenant on our behalf. The Holy Spirit is God pursuing us in passionate love, calling us to respond to his covenant 
and to be united to his love. One. This is the greatest news in the world as far as I'm concerned. And it brings peace. It brings joy to those who respond. Now, notice what this passage tells us of God. And, and that is that his love. Okay, love is of God. This, what it means is that he is the original source of love. That he did not get love from somewhere else, right? Added it to his repertoire. It's a spontaneous fountain that, that, that of love that flows from him. God is love. He does not have love, which, again, would mean that something was added to him. Something that may not, you know, have been or, or, or wasn't present and, and that is capable of change. It can increase or it can decrease. You know, he, he is love. It is the way he is. It's his essential nature. It's just who God is love. I, you know, I, I may tell you, <clears throat> thank you, Bridget, that I have a glass of water. Or maybe I'm a reservoir. <laughs> but it's a different category for me to say that I am water. To, to have water means that my possession of it is, is, is subject to change, either increase or decrease. Excuse me. Decrease. That's the, I wish I wouldn't have done that. <laughs> but... <laughs> To be water means I am never subject to change because it's what I am. He is the definition of love. Love is the way he is. So I want to talk about the difference tonight between agape and eros. Agape and eros. The word for love that is used in the original language is, is vital here to our understanding of God. In the Greek, in the New Testament, the word is agape. It was a word that meant love, but it was a very general word, and it lacked clear definition. You'll find that it was hardly used, and it's not found to be in the Greek literature of the first century. The word that was used for love in the days of Jesus and during the time of the New Testament was that when it was written was the word eros, a word that almost, you know, is exactly like our word in English today that we use for love. It, it meant the love of the lovely and the beautiful. It, it reached up and, and you know, it's, it's, it's a whole, it's a love that's straining to possess the highest and the best. And, and therefore, it, it was, was incapable of loving the ugly or that which was out of harmony with, with itself. Eros, love, is repulsed by what it perceives as ugly or, in fact, anything that is lower than its standard. Now, the source of Eros is the beauty of the person 
that is love. Eros's love is, is, is well, it's woken up and, and, and called forth by the beauty of the beloved, okay? So, you know, guys see a really gorgeous girl and they're awakened by their beauty. I see a large pepperoni sausage and mushroom pizza. I am awakened by its beauty. <laughs> but what I'm talking about here is a very shaky foundation. It is a, it, it's a it's a it's a built-in weakness. It's a it's a liability, uh, and 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 <laughs> when you talk about dealing with beauty and 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 the look, it is also liable to become distracted by the arrival of the more beautiful object to replace the now boring beloved. Okay, that thing was beautiful when I first. Oh man, go you know you buy a new car. I'm going, okay, buy a new truck. Gorgeous, man. It's got all the details, all the fun stuff, all the toots and the whistles and everything else. And you love it, and it gets older. And it becomes, you know, it loses its sheen. And then you see that next beautiful truck. And you look at the old, and you look at the new, and you <laughs> and it fades. <laughs> the light goes out. The, the whole point is, that's the idea of Eros. Human love works the principle that the person who is loved has created and earned the love of the lover by his or her beauty, and the person then has to continue to earn that love by maintaining that beauty. Eros is, is driven to fulfill its own needs and its own pleasures. It is characterized as a result by a driving and urgent need to conquer and to exclusively own the object of which it desires as a result reducing the beloved instead to a thing or an object to be used. I always said men were like that when they go out dating. You know, once they find a gal and they're trying to win her over and everything else and they conquer her finally, they, 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 uh, they conquer in that sense. And, and then when they've done conquered, then they... Look for another thing to conquer. I'm going to get in trouble here. but When we think of love today, what we do is we tend to think of it through the lens, if you will, of eros. It is certainly the definition of love that is fed our culture, if you want to look at it that way, whether it's in advertising or movies or TV. I call it trash fiction. You know... <laughs> Teens get all excited, and they announce that they have fallen in love. And they mean that they have met the person who, for at least at this moment, is the highest, the best, the most beautiful person in the universe, not the world. And, and, and they must possess him or her and, and make that person their own. <clears throat> we all know how that works. It's... It's huge to understand that the word eros does not appear in the New Testament. Mark that. It doesn't. In proclaiming and defining the gospel, the Holy Spirit basically forbid the use of the word eros. And, and, and the word for the human love, basically, and, and gave us what was essentially a new word for love, agape. 
and, and used the New Testament to fill it with its own meaning and definition as a result. Now, agape is not weakened or created by the beauty of its object, but arises spontaneously from the heart of God. It's, it's as a result, a, a love that cannot be earned, it cannot be deserved, and it springs from the heart of God on all of us. Now, it, it reaches to that, it reaches out really to the spiritual ugly. Hello. I know a lot of places in my life that have been spiritually ugly. And, and it reaches out to those who are out of harmony with him. It even reaches out to the enemy that would seek to destroy him. Listen. It is not our spiritual beauty that awakes and awakens him to love us. It's not our acts of goodness. It's not our track record of righteousness that arouses him. And, and, and I say that because we do these things to try to write, uh, get him to look at us. We try to get his attention to come towards us as a result. His love for us originates in who he is, not our being lovable. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, you're just not lovable. See, now what's worse, telling them that they're not lovable or looking at them and laughing? Yeah, see, okay, but, but I'll say this again. He is the source of his love, okay? It's, it's, it's reason and energy is him. He loves us because it is his nature to love. Now, the, uh, the gospel declares... The incredible news that, that, that our relationship to God is not based on if and then, but more like because or therefore. In other words, the gospel announces that because he loved us, therefore he is the source of our salvation and blessing in life, the one whom our faith and Hope rest. I mean, that understanding governs our coming to Christ at every step then of walking out of the Christian life. You can't replace it. I mean, we come to Christ like that, but then we turn it around and make it our responsibility to, to, to get him to like us. Look at this, Luke chapter 18, it says, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. This is what he says. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Boy, that's about as far as you can get back there. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. And he goes on to say, and the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The righteous Pharisee, I'm, I'm, the, I'm sorry, not the righteous, the, the sinners. Thank you, sorry. 
the religious Pharisee, he, he understood God as having eros love. There, 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 there must be a, a you know, spiritual beauty in the person that he bestows, God bestows his acceptance and, and blessing upon. There, there is the feeling that, it, you know, uh, that, that if certain religious duties are performed, if we discipline ourselves good enough, then God is going to respond favorably, you know? The Pharisee <clears throat> passed God's love through the grid of human love. Eros. He couldn't even imagine a God who would want, let alone, you know, love a person who was less than perfect. So he compared himself to others. That's what Eros love does. You know, in order for you to feel more spiritual and holy, you've got to, you know, compare yourself to others and say, I thank God that I'm not like them. He compared himself with, with the irreligious. And what he does is he's, you know, basking in affirmation. Well, you know, Jesus. And he believed that he had attained the position of being good enough for God. Tax collector, you know, accepted the God-given relation that he was loved, in, that he was loved in spite of his track record as a low-life tax collector and a traitor to his people. He had, he had the key to life as, as, as a result of believing that God was love and that God was mercy. Therefore, he could call upon him and be heard. The word he used as he called upon God, translated as mercy, is the covenant word, hasid which we have also seen is then translated as what? Loving kindness. The man called upon a covenant that was made on his behalf by the God who is love. In an Eros world, the gospel is a scandal. I mean, it says basically to all men and women that they are loved by God, not because of who they are or what they have done or not done because of who he is. Now, now let me just say, uh, you are loved, okay, because you are alive and breathing, period. I mean, it, it, you might want to check and see if they are. Some are breathing more than others. Yeah, I understand. I'm there. But I want you to let that sink in for a minute. Right now, at this very moment, you are the focus of the passionate and unconditional love of God. Oh, yes, you are. He loves you with his entire being. And, and, and you have all of his love as if you, you were the only person in existence. He loves you because you exist with, without reference to your behavior. How does that work? Look, let it grab hold of you. Understand and live in that reality 
and our behavior even changes in response to his infinite love that, that leaves us in, 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 a, in a worshiping wonder. It's like John said, right? And, and it's not on the screen, but you know, it's in 1 John. We love him because he, I guess you do know it. But what we're talking about is the revelation of the heart of God. And that it is the foundation of the covenant and the truth upon which we as a result that build our entire Christian life. The, the, the love of God initiates the covenant and is the ultimate, literal, ultimate of expression of his love. It, it's, it's the, it's, I call it the magnetic north of truth by which our, our fixed position as, as we stumble lost in the wilderness of the world, I can always rest in that. I look to that no matter what comes, no matter what happens, no matter where I'm at. To know that his love for us depends on him and not on us is the beginning of the way out of our futile, meaningless lives and religious despair. He, 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 he understand that, that God is spoken of as everlasting. Look at Jeremiah 31 here. It says, he... Oh, I'm sorry, the Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have borne you. Think about this, because this means that his love for us has poured forth spontaneously from, from his heart without beginning, before and outside of time, space, and history. He set his love on us before we were even born. And, 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 and therefore, you know, with no reference to our behavior or works. I mean, how much trouble did you get in before you were born? When we talk about that, 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 that kind of love, you can't think, in terms of deserving or earning because, let's say it again, it originates in his heart. It's not based on our actions. An everlasting love is unconditional love. Hosea says, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. He loves us freely. You grab that? Even though we are wayward, even though we're rebellious, he this gets me excited because I know I'm accepted. His love is unilateral. I mean, it's not drawn out by anything I have done. His love is not like, you know, it's some heat got to miss, you know, the draw, you know, the draws to the heat of, you know, his love springs spontaneously from who he is. He is the motivation for his love. He takes the initiative in seeking us out. Everlasting love is what I would call a before love. Everybody say that part. Before love. I mean, therefore, before we were born, 
Hello? I mean, none of us is an accident of life that we're alive by chance. Each one of us has been the focus of God's love since, since, since we were a thought in his mind. Each of us was called forth into existence by the love of God. Take a look at Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, for you formed my inward parts. You conceived me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance, being yet unformed. And in your book, they, are, they, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there was there were none of them. Now, the psalmist is standing in wonder of the fact that he was known before he was born. The, the word in, in verse 1 of the psalm that says known in the Hebrew is the Hebrew word yada. Say that with me, yada. And, and it's a word that means knowing intimately by observation. In other words, it was used to describe the knowing between lovers and is a word used for the most intimate union of husband and wife. He contemplates the finger of God that's caressing and fashioning him and us in our mother's womb. He delights in the microscopic baby that, that God's love has called into being. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Verse 15. I love that verse in the Amplified. Take, take a look at this. It says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being formed in secret and intricately and curiously wrought as if embroidered with various colors in the depths of the earth, a region of darkness and mystery. I'm sorry, man. That's why I stand highly against abortion. Uh, you know, that's it's it's. <laughs> but even then, God loves. What I hate is the mindset the enemy has brought about. Not the people. Don't don't you know? God was there at the delivery to welcome each one of you into the world. It is his love for us that draws us to him, even in the years when we don't even recognize his voice. Been there. He puts the question in our heart concerning the emptiness, really, of our existence. He creates the, the, the longing for a, a love that we, we can't find in this earth, no matter what we do or how we do it. He puts within us this discontentment with our search for happiness and stir it up the longing for longings for and you know the joy that we long for. He, he's, he's inspired all of our yearnings that come for him, yearn after him. You and I were conceived in the love of God in the womb. 
we were birthed into the arms of his love. And we are the object of his love here and now simply because we exist. Look, realize that, that you are a babe in the arms of God's love. Love because of who he is. Loved as the one who has his soul attention and, and, and delight. And I keep thinking about these babies that are born and mama's holding them in there. Oh, isn't he beautiful? No. The ugly little thing, you know? Skin's all wrinkled or red and kind of thing. But, you know, love, joyed, delight. I don't care what you look like, what you sound like. He loves you. You realize that you are that babe in the arms of God. See, the love of God is ultimately and, and, and revealed in the sending of his son, the son of God, Jesus Christ, into this world. In Christ, God joined us where we are in our sin-blasted world and the, and the, and the feudal existence. Understand, he took our humanity and lived among us as a true human being. It is, it is joining us in our death, dying for us, as us, on the cross, and, and manifested love, triumphant then, in the resurrection. It, it is in this that his love literally achieves what I would call the ultimate goal and makes the covenant between God and us, mankind, humankind. The believer is described as one who comes to know and believe the love of God and has entered into a union with him. God becomes the believer's habitat. Let me say it again. God becomes the believer's habitat even as the believer becomes the dwelling of God. Look, look at 1 John. It says, and we have known and believed that the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. To come to know and believe the love that God has for us has, uh, it must not be thought of, okay, as a, an interesting religious curiosity. The knowledge of God's love towards us constitutes the major revolution in our lives. You know, how many times have I, and myself too, you know, for years, you know, you, you, you try to achieve a certain level, right, of behavior and dedication and doing all the right things and not doing the things you're not supposed to do and all these other things coming together, you know, a dedication and, and so forth before we, you know, we knew that, that we had to achieve that in order for God to, 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 to love us or even like us. <laughs> he loves us because he is love. Look, there are countless believers 
who go through life with no concept of the unconditional love that he has for us. Part of our being lost from God is that we are born into a world that has turned away from his love. You and I have been raised in a society of sin. Selfishness, failing, human love, abuse, dysfunction. As children, you know, we were shamed and, and taught in hundreds of ways that we're not worthy of being loved. We, we were taught to despise our, our poor efforts and as a result to perform in a way that would make us then worthy of love. So our contact with the church has often projected the shame that we knew from our family into, understand, into our understanding of God. He was presented to us as shaming us and demanding the keeping, really, of impossible standards before he would love us. After all God did for you, the least you seems like he reached out from the pulpit and hit me right in the nose. Let's be honest. Inside we say, that's for others, thus worthy exception to the rule of his limitless love. And that really is kind of extreme bloated pride in my book. But there are many who cannot find it in themselves to believe that God so loves them, that completely, that, that totality. And they find it difficult because they believe themselves really not to be good enough for him. So, you know, they, they, they're not used of God. They don't walk with God. They don't, you know, they do certain things that they're trying to earn the favor of God or whatever. So, so let me ask some questions tonight. Let me, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm coming to an end, believe it or not. <laughs> if God is infinite, he's unconditional love then are we not slandering his character to say that he does not love us or could not love us? And by making ourselves the exception, we are denying both that his love is infinite and that it is unconditional. Here's another question. What is being worthy to do with the good news that's contained in the new covenant. Here's another question. Do we think that God loves us because we have done something good? Another question. Do we think that the love of God is the warm feeling we get after we have evaluated our lives and decided that we are good enough, at least for the present, to be loved by God? All those, you know, you've done that moment. You, oh, God, I am a God. I did this for you. God, I didn't do anything wrong for the past two hours. <laughs> Last question. Are we not trying to control God, telling him that we are not ready to be loved by him? And when we are ready, we'll give him permission to extend his love to us. I do not feel worthy is really a feeling 
of religious flesh. And uh, it's got to be crucified. And, and, and it's got to be labeled and, and called a lie that comes from the one who first said, has God not said? I mean, I don't doubt that we feel, you know, that, 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 that we're not worthy. But what has that got to do with faith, which is in the face of, of such feelings and declares the truth and stands in, I call it speechless awe before such a God. To believe in those feelings and exclude oneself from his love is to build a twisted, distorted idol and call it the God revealed in Jesus. I got news for you. When we first hear of his unconditional love, our response is delight. They're the most incredible words that we have ever heard. Our lives are changed in that moment. But then it's not long before the words become a scandal to us. How could he love me? Look at, look at all of that messed up. Look at all that needs to be overcome. Look at how I can't stand on my own two feet and do what's right. And I'm going to tell you, it would be true to say that we do not truly know his love until we have deliberately submitted to it against all the better judgment of our moral religious flesh. Submitting to his love means that we take a stand against those, those, those raging feelings of phony flesh that despises itself and against the, 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 the voice, the sneering voice of the accuser of the brethren. While our feelings hypnotize us with a lie and you have this self-loathing demands that it believes we have got to open our mouths and declare aloud his love for us. I know what my mind says. I know what my actions have done. I know how I've messed up. But that doesn't change his love for me. Faith is not a feeling. It's a choice against our feelings. Sometimes against every feeling in our body to believe the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And one thing is for sure, all of our whining that he could not love us does not stop him from loving us. His love is almighty and, and does reach us. I don't care where we are. He sets his love upon us before we're born <laughs> without even asking our permission. And I find then it's, it's based on eternity. It's eternally too late to argue with them on that issue. It's already a done deal. He is the God who, as Jesus tells us, delights to throw wild parties for the undeserving failures in life, to celebrate them and declare them his own if the prodigal son had come home. Let's kill 
we're going to have ourselves a steak. Listen to me very carefully. You are not working toward his love. You are now, in this very moment, loved, period. The only explanation to his making the covenant is his love for us. That's the reason he did it. We receive of his love with thanks. We surrender to that love. And we rest secure in it. By grace, you have been saved. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Thank you for speaking to us right where we are. Thank you for becoming to us what you have. Lord, let us not rest in our mentality, our, our, our emotions here, but rest in the reality of who you are and that you are love. You loved us before we even were born. And that has never stopped. That's how much you care for us. Grab hold of that. To live in that changes everything. Father, I pray your blessing, your touch. I pray the opening of eyes for understanding and revelation of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless them, keep them, encourage them. In Jesus' name, amen.